Well, as the kids head out, if you would, take your Bible and open to Matthew chapter 7. Or if you have a phone or a device that has a copy of God's Word on it, feel free to, to open that up. And we're going to be looking at the very end of the Sermon on the Mount this morning. As we come to the end of this study, we're actually going to wrap around after Easter and pick up a few of the parts that we skipped over really quickly. But this is sort of the last section of the Sermon on the Mount. And what I want us to do this morning is explore how the Sermon on the Mount ends and the way that that relates to Palm Sunday. As I was studying God's Word this week and thinking about the Sermon on the Mount and thinking about Palm Sunday, I saw a way in which they relate that had never come to me before, maybe never made sense. I just never looked at it in that way. And so we're going to put together the end of the Sermon on the Mount with Palm Sunday and see how God is speaking to us through, uh, through His Word. Based on how fast some of the kids run to the doors, you would think we had a track team here at, uh, at First Baptist. So uh, they run to the doors because they love to be with their uh, child care workers and, and their teachers. They may be running away from my sermon, but I like to think they're running toward the, uh, the child care workers. And so thank you to all of you who serve with kids. Thank you so much for what you do. If you are not serving with kids and you're a part of First Baptist, I encourage you to find a way to do that. We had a dad working in the nursery during Sunday school. What a great image for people to come in and know that there are men of God who are there serving our kids, serving alongside them, singing songs to them, teaching them Bible stories. And so thank you to everyone. We want this to be a safe place for people to bring their kids, a place they can come and hear, hear about Jesus. Uh, just preparing for this week, for Easter week, I know you've heard about this thing on Thursday called Maundy Thursday, and that doesn't make a lot of sense to us. You know, we're not, we're not familiar with this type of service. What's going to happen on Thursday is the building will open at 7 a.m., and it'll close at 7 p.m. You'll be able to come in any time during the day When you come in, you'll receive a worship guide that has some scripture in it, and the Lord's Supper will be set up, the communion will be set up here on the table in front, and there'll be a deacon or a staff member here to serve communion, to serve Lord's Supper to you. If you want to come on the way to work, if you want to swing by on the way to work early in the morning, you may want to pick up the kids at school and come after school. You can come down and eat dinner that night in, in downtown and support some of the local businesses and come here and participate in the Lord's Supper. However you want to do that, just know that this place will be open to you on, on Thursday. And then we have our Easter egg hunt on Saturday. That's a great way to invite your neighbors, kids to come. We have 3,000 eggs for the Easter egg hunt on Sunday. So we need help hiding 3,000 eggs over at Commerce Day Park. You really can't hide 3,000 eggs. You more just throw them out there and watch chaos ensue, but uh, it's fun nonetheless. And then one thing to say about Easter Sunday before we get into this. We've talked about this before, but I know that there are people who only come to church on Christmas and Easter. And, and sometimes, and I'm included in this, sometimes we'll make jokes about that. Let's be super sensitive next week because there are going to be people who are going to take a step of courage to come inside a church building when they normally don't do that. And if we're going to do anything, let's meet them with love and with grace and acceptance. And so 
go out of your way to park away from the building. If you, can, if you are physically able to walk, park as far as you can from the building next week. Let's just do everything we can. We want to do this every week, but especially next week, to prefer our guests and prefer people who maybe wouldn't normally set foot in a church building. That's hard. Some of you remember being away from church a long time and then trying to come back into a church building, that, that's not an easy step. And so we just want to be very understanding of, of that being the case next week. Okay, let's look at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, and then we're going to try to tie this together with Palm Sunday. We don't do this every week to when we read Scripture, but let's stand together, uh, give you a chance to get some of the adult wiggles out before the, the sermon, but also to stand in honor of, of reading God's Word. Matthew chapter 7, we're going to start in verse 13. Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction, and there are many who enter through it. For the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life, and there are few who find it. It actually gets more difficult from there, more intense. Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor figs from thistles, are they? So every good tree bears good fruit, and the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So then you will know them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven But he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare them, and then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them may be compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and slammed against that house, and yet it did not fall, for it had been founded on the rock. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and slammed against that house, and it fell." And great was its fall. Father, if we grasp even half of the intensity of those words, our our knees would just literally buckle uh, under us. God, I pray that as people come into this building today and we bring all kinds of our personal junk and all kinds of burdens with us, God, may this word, even though it's very difficult, may it be a word of grace and may it be a word of hope. And Father, I pray that you would speak to us, speak through your word. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So throughout the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is very clear in teaching the way that he wants his people to live. But when we get here to verse 13, he's essentially finished with his ethical instruction. He's he's finished with his, this is how you should live as my followers. And what he begins to do at this point is he lays out very clearly, four different times between verses 13 and 17, he lays very clearly two paths. You can go this way, and it leads to life, or you can go this way, and it leads to destruction. I don't know if you've ever played the game called Would You Rather? 
I first learned about this game from my wife who would play the game with some of the kids that she was a camp counselor with. There's even a board game out now called Would You Rather. It's things like, would you rather share your bed with a skunk or a porcupine? Well, if given the choices, you know, like what, what would you rather pick? It, it's kind of picking. It's like me when I go to the restaurant and they ask you which vegetable you would like. Would you like the vegetable medley or the vegetable of the day? Well, what's the vegetable medley? Broccoli and cauliflower. What's the vegetable of the day? Cauliflower and broccoli. Oh, can I just have double fries, you know, or something like, why do I have to pick between those two options? It's, it, would I rather go this way or this way? Jesus here, though, is laying out two very clear paths. Would you rather have the path that leads to life, or would you rather have the path that leads to destruction? And then we obviously want to know, what is the difference between those paths? And what Jesus is doing here is he's picking up on a very ancient tradition, a tradition that goes back into ancient Judaism, into ancient rhetoric, and it's just the simple path of when you are doing rhetoric, when you're making a political speech or you're making any type of speech, you want to make two very clear options. Are you going to buy this product or this product, mine or theirs? And and so you're laying out two different ways. Deuteronomy chapter 30 kind of gives us the Old Testament background for what Jesus is doing here. Deuteronomy chapter 30, starting in verse 15, and these verses will be up on the screen. If you want, you can write them down and look at them later. But Deuteronomy 30, starting in verse 15, see, I have set before you today life and prosperity, death and adversity, in that I command you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in his ways and to keep his commandments and his statutes and his judgments, that you may live and multiply, and that the Lord your God may bless you in the land where you are entering to possess it. Then in verse 17, But if your heart turns away, and you will not obey it, but are drawn away and worship other gods and serve them, I declare you to you today that you shall surely perish. So Jesus is picking up on this tradition of there is one way of life that leads to eternal and full life, and there is another way that leads to destruction. Can I just be honest with you? Part of me inside says, why two paths? Why, why does it only two paths? Why not three or four or five? But what we have to realize is that it's incredible that two paths exist anyway. What would be more likely is there is only one path and you just kind of figure it out as you go along. The fact that God sets out two paths, that Jesus says you can go this way or this way, is actually an act of God's love and an act of God's grace to say that there is not just one path that leads to destruction, but there is another path that leads to life. Because we live in a world where people say, how can you be so narrow-minded? Which is an interesting phrase when you have Jesus saying something like a narrow gate and a narrow path. But how can you be so narrow-minded to say that there is only one way to God and it comes through Jesus and the other path leads to destruction? Why are there not three options or four options or all the paths lead to God? You know part of the answer to that question? Part of the answer is is there were three paths that led to God. We would want a fourth. And if there were a hundred paths that led to God, we would want a hundred and one. 
And if there were a million paths that led to God, we would want a million and one. And so the fact that there is more than one path, and it doesn't just lead to destruction, but there is a path that leads to life, and Jesus says, it is my way, that is an act of God's grace from the very beginning. And Jesus is not coming along here as a teacher saying, I want to show you how to live a better life. Jesus shows up as the king of the universe, and he says, come to me. I I am life. John chapter 10, verse 9, Jesus says, I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And then it follows with that, that no one comes to the Father except through me. There is a Jesus way that leads to life. And there is another way centered on ourselves that leads to destruction. And Jesus is laying this out clearly at at the end of the Sermon on the Mount because he wants people to look to him and find life, to say, I'm the resurrection and the life. Anyone who comes to me will know life. Look what Jesus does next in verse 15. He says, beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. And then he uses this analogy. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor figs from thistles, are they? So every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. And then in verse 18, a good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So then you will know them by their fruits. One of the things that Jesus hits at in the Sermon on the Mount over and over is this idea of hypocrisy. And every one of us either have said it with our own words or we have heard others say it. I don't want to go to church because it's a place full of hypocrites. We've heard that. We've said that ourselves. We've at least thought that ourselves. And Jesus over and over in the Sermon on the Mount says you cannot go down the route of hypocrisy. And hypocrisy is just the cousin of lying. Hypocrisy is saying one thing and doing another. It's looking one way on the outside and actually being somebody completely different on the inside. And what Jesus is saying here is he is speaking particularly to people who are gifted, people who are leaders, people who are very charismatic. And he's saying to the other people, watch out for them. Watch out because they may look good They may look slick, they may look flashy on the outside, they may look very religious on the outside, but inside they are ravenous wolves, and they will destroy you. These are the religious leaders who look very gifted, who look very talented, who look very spiritual, and then you find out that they're brutal at home, they're dishonest, they have no compassion, they have no love, they're full of greed, And when I say that out loud, it terrifies me. Because you should be looking at at my life and saying, is he just trying to be spiritual? Is he just trying to look like a religious leader? Is he just trying to look like someone who's trying to use a particular gift? And on the inside, it's dark and rotten and there's nothing there. And we could all look out at the world and there are spiritual leaders, spiritual leaders who looked like sheep on the outside and inwardly, They were wolves, just destroying the people around them, leading them away from God. And there's nothing easy about this message. I wish there was like another part that I could add on to say, oh, it's all sunflowers and 
rainbows, but it's not. This is just the reality that we live in a world where it's possible to be a hypocrite. And the worst kind of hypocrites are the religious leaders who are hypocrites because they end up destroying themselves and the people around them. What does it look like to produce good fruit? Galatians chapter 5, verse 22. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. So I could stand up here and give it my best college try and preach what looks like a good sermon, but if I'm not patient with my family and I'm not full of joy and peace throughout the week, I'm not living out what God's Word says. And that is a call to humility. (laughs) And that is a call to reflect in on ourselves and say, Lord, what am I doing? And you might be saying, well, how could you ever do this? How could you ever do these things? I'm glad you asked. John chapter 15, verse 5. Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. And then he says, apart from me, you can do nothing. If I try to be a good religious leader on my own, I will fail. It will be an awful picture. But if I stay connected to Jesus, the result of that is I will produce Jesus' fruit. And then in turn, you will say, how is he able to live like that? And I'll say, it has nothing to do with me being a good person. It has to do with the Jesus way. It has to do with being connected to him and allowing him to work through us. And then Jesus turns around in verse 21. He says, if you were angry at the leaders, watch out for yourselves. Verse 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven But he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, and that day is the day that we will stand before the Lord in judgment. He's looking out at the day of judgment. On that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, and in your name cast out demons, and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me. You who practice lawlessness. These verses are in about the top three sets of verses that will keep a pastor awake at night. I heard a religious leader, a well-known, well-respected religious leader say this week that he estimated, and I think his estimate's too high, but let me just go ahead and give it to you and then we'll back away from it. His estimate was that up to 50% of people who are members of churches will stand before the Lord and say, Lord, Lord, and he'll say, I never knew you. In other words, they were faking it. They were pretending to be followers of Jesus and not really following of Jesus. I don't think it's 50%, but I think it's high enough to scare us, Bally, to say that I looked religious, I even did some religious things, and then we would stand before the Lord, and he would say, I I never knew you. All of that was in vain. All of that was simply just a show. And here's where we have to be very careful because of where we live. Let's make crystal clear that this is not a Catholic problem, okay? Because it's easy to say, oh, yeah, yeah, I know people who are like that. They go to the Catholic church. They go through all these religious rituals, and they do all these different things, and they look spiritual, 
We're not talking about a Catholic problem. We pray for Father Mike, and, and I am excited about his ministry at OLG, and, and I want to love him and be a brother with him. This is not a Catholic problem. This is a human problem. This is a heart problem. This is the reality that a Baptist as well as a Catholic could put on a religious show and yet not truly be a follower of Jesus Christ. So what's missing for these people? If they're saying religious words, if they're doing religious action, what's missing? Jesus says here in verse 23, no, in verse 22, he says, oh, verse 23. It had to be one or the other, 22 or 23. He says, I never knew you. So the first thing we realize is there is a lack of a relationship. There is no covenant relationship. I don't know you. I I don't know you in the sense of I might know your name, but we have no relationship. We don't truly know one another. And then he says, depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Now, if you like to underline words in your Bible, that word lawlessness, or if you can highlight words in your phone, that word lawlessness is a very unique word in the Sermon on the Mount. And it actually shows up again in Matthew chapter 24. Matthew chapter 24, verse 12, Jesus is talking about signs of the end times. And he says, because lawlessness, same word as in Matthew 7, because lawlessness, lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. So if you're trying to figure out who are the people that Jesus is talking about in Matthew 7, they're the people who miss the basics. They failed to love God and love others. They knew how to come to church. They knew when to stand up and sit down. They knew the right words to say so that everybody would think that they were spiritual, but they missed the most basic things. If you would just love God and love others. And I've talked about this before, but, but my concern is especially for somebody like me who grew up in church or, or a First Baptist church like this where we have programs and we have nice buildings and we have things that go on. Sometimes my concern is that the worst spiritual mistake we make is we overcomplicate what it means to follow Jesus. Do you truly love God and have a relationship with him? And do you truly love others and care about them? And if you do, live life. Live the life that God has laid out before you. You don't have to attend another program or do another thing to be made right with God. Get the foundation right, and then you just simply live out the life that God has laid before you. The people that Jesus rejects are those who look spiritual but never got that part of it right. Let's look at the last part here. Verse 24, Matthew 7, 24. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them may be compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and slammed against that house and yet it did not fall for it had been founded on the rock. Verse 26. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and slammed against that house and it fell and the fall was great. You know, we could say a lot of things about these verses, but the thing that stands out to me and the thing I don't think I've ever paid attention to until this week is for the person who built on the rock and the person who built on the sand The rain and the floods and the wind were exactly the same. 
Sometimes this idea, if I follow Jesus, I'll miss out on the rain and the floods and the, and the wind. No, it's exactly the same. The question is, what is your life built on? Because there will come times in life when life will start to crumble. And things will start to fall down. And the question is, what is the foundation? What will hit? Where will you land when all of life falls apart? And that's your foundation. Are you committed to Jesus and his way? Or is your foundation actually sand? Now, I know this is a really bad example to use when we live close to the ocean. Thankfully, my soil, there is no sand. It's all clay. So I figure I'm pretty, that's close to rock where I live. But uh, it's not the idea about geographically where you live. It's about what is your life really based on? What what are you founded on? Where do your life go back to? Okay, so there's the end of the Sermon on the Mount. What in the world does that have to do with Palm Sunday? Matthew chapter 21. If you, if you scroll down in your phone or you flip over in your Bible, Matthew chapter 21 is the scripture passage that's being read around the world this morning for, for Palm Sunday. And I want you to have a chance to look at this. And, and we're trying to think, what does that, those two ways that Jesus laid out, what does that have to do with this scripture in Matthew chapter 21. When they had approached Jerusalem and had come to Bethpage at the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied there and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord has need of them, and immediately he will send them. Verse 4. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to the daughter of Zion, behold your king. That's a huge phrase right there. Behold your king is coming to you, gentle and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did just as Jesus had instructed them and brought the donkey and the colt and laid their coats on them and he sat on the coats. Most of the crowd spread their coats in the road, and others were cutting branches from the trees and spreading them in the road. This is where we get the idea of Palm Sunday. They were laying palms. Other gospels say they were waving palm leaves. The crowds going ahead of them, and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Corey told us earlier, Hosanna is a word for salvation. Save us now, God. Verse 10, when he had entered Jerusalem, all the city was stirred, saying, who is this? And the crowds were saying, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. So these huge crowds were gathered in in Jerusalem for Passover already. And they see Jesus coming in, and he's riding a donkey, And all of these prophecies about how the king would come to save the people, the king would come to save them from the Romans, they think the king is here. The king has come. God has come to save us from all of these foreign oppressors. And so the crowds shout out. But here's something interesting about the Gospels. This is not the last time that the crowd shout in the Gospel of Matthew. Turn over to Matthew chapter 27. Scroll down your phone. The, the words will be up on the screen as well if you, if you don't have a copy in, in front of you. So the crowds have just shouted out, God save us. God save us. The king is coming. Matthew chapter 27, starting in verse 15. 
Now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the people one prisoner whom they wanted. At that time, they were holding a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. We're actually going to come back and look at this in detail next week on Easter. Verse 17, so when the people gathered together, Pilate said to them, whom do you want me to release for you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? And then skip down to verse 20. The chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowds. Notice that word crowds showing up over and over again. Persuaded the crowds to ask for Barabbas and to put Jesus to death. But the governor said to them, which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, then what shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ? And they all said, crucify him. And he said, why? What evil has he done? But they kept shouting all the more, saying, crucify him. Now, we don't know if the crowds in Matthew 21, as Jesus was coming into the city, were the exact same people who were present in Matthew 27. But what we do know is Matthew purposely uses the word crowds twice. And there is almost certainty that some of the people in Matthew 21 were some of the same people in Matthew 27. Which means that there were some people shouting, Hosanna, God has come to save us. And a few days later, they were shouting, crucify him. Crucify him. How can you go from shouting, God save us, to shouting, crucify him? Well, have you ever followed sports? Have you ever heard of a bandwagon fan? The coach has come to save us. He's going to save our program. Everything's going to be okay. A few years later, he loses a few games. Crucify him. He's gone. Cut his contract. We live in a bandwagon world where if someone has come to do for us what we want them to do for us, they thought Jesus came to save them from the Romans, and then they missed the suffering part and the salvation part and the dying on the cross part, and they said, crucify him. You can shout, Hosanna, And a few days later, you can shout, crucify him. You can show up in sheep's clothing, and you can actually be a wolf. You can say, Lord, Lord, and never truly know God. You can build a beautiful house that looks great on the outside, and it's actually built on sand and destined for destruction. Part of me wants to say, Lord, who can stand in that? How can any of us stand in light of what you're saying? And he's not saying, I'm calling you to be perfect. He's not saying, I want you to try harder. He's saying, come to me, you who are weary and heavy burdened, and I will give you rest. I'm the resurrection and the life. The one who comes to him will find life. He's not a teacher who comes and says, do better with your life. He's the king who says, I have come to save you Turn to me and you will find hope and you will find salvation. And so as we prepare for Holy Week, all I want to do this morning is to point you toward Jesus and say he is the life. He is your salvation. And if you want to know what that looks like, love God and love others. Am I truly loving God with all of my heart, with all my soul, with all my mind, with all my strength? Am I truly loving others, loving my neighbor as I would myself? 